Amen. Thank you, brother, for that special number. Thank you, choir, for challenging and stirring our hearts with that uh, beautiful hymn, We Preach Christ. We are the church, and we are called of God to preach his word and preach Christ in this sin-sick world. What a blessing it is that despite the world in which we live, is that we have a blessed hope found in the only one true person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had a great, we didn't have a good time since Friday. We have had a great time. I've been thrilled, and I would like to speak on behalf of my wife, of course, that we're so grateful. Every time we come here at Bergen Bible Baptist Church, I'm not kidding. I mean this from the heart. We really are thankful that we can be at home with kindred, spirited brethren. And although, of course, we miss Pastor Max, as usually, but uh, certainly he's in a far better state than we are. So we don't have to be envious of him, okay? I wonder if he's missing us, okay? We're missing him, but I wonder if he must be so preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, he would hardly, you know, I wonder if, I was telling my son the other day the same thing, you know, if should the Lord uh, take us home, I was like, I wonder if I'll be missing you, you know? <laughs> we say, oh, we'll be missing you, Daddy, Papa, Mama, you know, while they're here. But when we see Christ no longer by, by, by faith, but by sight, boy, what would be so preoccupied with him? And what a glorious day that will be. Okay, we've been looking at Acts chapter 20. And uh, my wife has to keep checking on me, of course, with the time. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've looked at the first few verses. Now we're looking at Acts chapter 20. Our text for this morning is verses 17 down through 28. And uh, shall we all stand please to give God honor and due reverence as we read this portion responsively and then together in the 28th verse. And of course the remaining portion of the book of Acts chapter 20 will be in our last message this afternoon. Verses 17 down to 28 we read, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Verse 28. For, therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Father in heaven, once again we humbly come before thee acknowledging our total unworthiness. We deserve nothing but wrath and condemnation. But thank you for the grace that is greater than our sin. Thank you for Calvary, as always, for the blood that has been shed to adequately atone for
for our sins and appease your divine wrath. And Father, we pray this morning again for thy Holy Spirit to once again use your word, speak to our hearts, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Give us hearts that are ready to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to deliver or sanctify our souls. And we shall thank you for it. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we've been looking at Paul's charge to elders in the church of Ephesus, but we've entitled this A Charge to Christian Witnesses. We pointed out from the beginning message last Friday that while Paul was preaching to pastors, he calls them elders in verse 17, or overseers in verse 28, or he calls them those who shepherd or feed the flock. That word feed is the Greek word poimen, where we get the word pastor or shepherd, but it's used not in a noun form, but in a verb form. They were to shepherd the flock or feed the flock of God. And therefore, the pastor, the elder, the the overseer is referring to the same person. But while Paul was addressing pastors here because he knew that the, the body of Christ, the church of Christ had to be challenged and steered from the leadership down, therefore he needed to tap the, and challenge the, the, the leaders of the church. But of course, he was, we pointed out this is a charge to Christian witnesses as well. So as he was talking to these leaders, of the churches, of community of believers, it is obvious that we see that the Apostle Paul places a premium on leadership. In fact, God puts a premium on leadership. That doesn't mean the pastor alone or the deacons alone. Men, you are a leader in your own home. Ladies, you are a leader in your own home over our children. And certainly God places a premium on leadership. He sets a high standard for adequate leadership. The Bible, as we pointed out, is not double standard. God has one standard for all believers, and that is holiness. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, while all, all believers have to be holy, the bishop, bishop, however, the leader, must be. Greek word dei, meaning a moral necessity. He must be blameless. It should be evident amongst God's leaders. Let, let, let us turn us to some portions of Scripture in the Old Testament to emphasize this truth, God places a premium on leadership. Turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter 4, and in verse 9. Hosea, chapter 4, and in verse 9, again and again, from the old all the way to the new. Hosea, chapter 4, verse 9. To God's people of the Old Testament, here's what God's word says. And there shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. This is one of the problems that God saw with the, on the, with the nation of Israel. When the leaders ought to be leading the flock, the priests ought to be instructing the people. Unfortunately, in the days of Hosea, the people were like, the priests were like the people. And God saw the need to indict them. Perhaps this is a fitting description of today's world. If there is a people on earth who should be so distinct, separate from the rest of the people, it should be God's people. Amen. But when there is no difference, when the people complain, and so do the priests complain, and then the prophets complain, then what difference do we have from the unsaved world? 
We have lost our witness. We have lost our salt, our savour. We have lost our testimony. And I think during the I think most of you will agree with me in the last two years since the pandemic, a lot of Christians, true callers and ministries have been made manifest. See, trials do make the real uh, areas in our lives to surface. You know why? Because circumstances, by the way, do not make our character. They only reveal the inside stuff. We often blame our circumstances for who we are. You know, the reason why I'm bitter is because of him. And therefore, he has to confess his sin before God before I get right with him. Really? What kind of reason is that? We often blame our circumstances when, like we said, circumstances do not make character. They only reveal it. Remember a teabag? I think it was Jim Berg who used that illustration. A teabag. A teabag has, of course, all of that black stuff inside that bag. And you place that teabag in hot water. What happens to that water? It becomes dark. The water would be symbolizing, let's say, the trials of our life. Hot water. You put that teabag on that hot water, it turns black. You know why? Not, not because of the water. It's because of what's inside. And so what is it us? Some of us may be going through the dregs, through tough times, but the circumstances do not make you. They only reveal who you really are. We need to be reminded of that. Let's look at another passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. Here's what we read. Okay, I know it's somewhere here. It's got to be here if I brought my whole Bible. So, <laughs> Chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. I'll read from verse 13. The people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do, I seek, do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teaches the lies, he is the tale. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. It's interesting. What, a sol what solemn words we find through the lips of Isaiah as the God, God was speaking through him. He was indicting the people of Israel. That the, the very people and the very leaders that they had were basically all in rebellion against God. And God was blaming much of it through the leadership as well. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 31. Chapter 5, verse 31. <clears throat> it says, the prophets, the prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests bear rule by their means. And my people, notice, my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? Do you know why there are a lot of false teachers? God allows false teachers to come in congregations because the people love to have them. Isn't that what 2 Timothy 4 tells us? People will look for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. If people, if, if congregants would do not come to people who preach false doctrine or error, then of course there will be no, no one who listen to them. 
they will have no audience, no listening audience. Again, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26 to 29. Chapter 22, verses 26 to 29. <clears throat> Again, we read from the inspired pen of Ezekiel the prophet. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. The very people who should be instructing the nation of Israel and Judah. They have put no difference, notice, between the holy and the profane. Neither have they shown difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them, God says. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get this honest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and dry, divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land. You see, he talked about the princes, the prophets. What about the people? Verse 22, 29. The people of the land have used oppression, exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy. And yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man, God says. He didn't look for a committee. He looked for singular, a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But sadly then, I found none. Just one who would stand in the gap between him and people and to deliver his oracles before men. God is looking for one. Thankfully, thousands, uh, hundreds of years later, God sent his son to stand in that gap. We now have one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Well, you know, God could have used angels to carry out the message of the gospel to the rest of the world, and he will actually in the book of Revelation. But while that's not God's plan right now, God is giving believers, men of like passions as we are, the privilege to be his instruments to deliver that message to others. And my prayer is for myself and for you. Will you be that one man to stand in the gap? Okay. So in all of these passages, we find Jesus putting a premium or God putting a premium on leadership. Let's move on to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy Chapter 5, verses 17 to 22. It says, <clears throat> Let the elders that rule well, notice elders, pastors, overseers, referring to the same person, different, different Greek words, but nonetheless refers to the same person. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. When do you say an elder is ruling well? How does your pastor show his love for you? It says there, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Did not Jesus say to Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, you know, Lord. I... Well, then therefore show it by feeding my sheep. Notice on further, for the, verse 18, For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. As a quotation from the Old Testament. And this time the gospel of Luke, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. You know what you do when you muzzle the ox, right? 
You know what an ox? The ox is usually the one who kind of cultivates the ground so that it will bear fruit as far as your, your crops are concerned. If you muzzle that ox, he will, he will not be able to eat. You're going to starve that ox that is the one cultivating that ground. He's going to die pretty soon. And that's what Paul is using, the book of Deuteronomy and the New Testament, Luke, the, gospel, the gospel of Luke, to point out that do not, it says, uh, we are to count the, the elders worthy of double honor. If you do not count your pastor worthy of double honor, you are muzzling the ox who is feeding you the truth of the word of God. Let me read further. Against an elder, <clears throat> receive not an accusation. That's a command, by the way. Have you heard some gossip about your pastor? And there will be a lot of them. And when they, they get spread, what does it say? Against an elder, do not receive it. Do not entertain it. I didn't say that. God said it. Do not entertain it, except, it says there, but before two or three witnesses. But if it's just one, I mean, it's, you know, it's so easy to fabricate, you know, a, a story against a man of God or simply any Christian witness. One is doing the will of God and preaching the gospel. Satan will always use some un carnal Christian or sometimes an unbeliever. But more often, more painful, a professing Christian who will start spreading lies just so to put to silence someone who's being convicted because of his message and God's messenger. So against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, if the truth is established, rebuke before all that others also may fear. So I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, and that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Turn to the book of James, chapter 3, verse 1. James says, Be not many masters or teachers, for they shall receive the greater damnation. You see, Many people think, well, the office of the pastor or the teacher, boy, what a, what a wonderful office. Boy, the pastor just stands up every Sunday once a week and then probably the rest of the week, Monday to Saturday, just twills his fingers on his desk, enjoying a vacation for the whole week, and then he starts working again on Sunday, and then we pay him so much. Now, of course, pastor and I did not talk about anything, by the way. I'm, I'm not trying to... I'm just going to, I'm just, my point, I'm driving it here simply. God places a premium on leadership. Leadership is a priority in the home as it is in the church. It is a tremendous responsibility. Matthew chapter 20, notice in verses 24 to 28, Jesus spoke on the subject of what it means to be great in his kingdom. And he said very clearly and poignantly, Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 to 28. We read, and when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation. I'm sorry, reading from verse, yeah, verse 24. It says, when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. And But Jesus called them unto him, said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's upon the, among Gentiles, among unbelievers. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. And even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So you want to be leader? This is leadership, God's definition. That's why some people in Christian circles have given us, in some books or literature, have, have, have kind of brainwashed the rest of Christendom by saying, you know, the church should be run like, an, uh, like, an, uh, like a corporation where the pastor is the chief executive office. Really? That's not what we read in the Bible. The Bible is very Eastern. That's why it talks about shepherd and sheep relationship, where the leader is a servant and a shepherd. You see, in a day, you see, in other words, leadership is great, has great responsibilities. And there, that's the reason why Paul gathered these elders in Ephesus to address them and give this charge to Christian witnesses. You see, in a day when slavery was rampant, inequality was ubiquitous, in a day when emperor worship was the rule of their day, and Christians were a haunted and hated people and were easily burned at stake because they would embrace Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord, and therefore we be charged by treason because they would in essence be saying that, that the narrow, or rather uh, the, uh, the leader would not be, is not God. That was the kind of culture they were living in during that time. But Paul therefore saw that was their mission fields. Paul saw the urgency of gathering these leaders of the Christian community, the church, to leave them a God-breathed charge, which are God's words for each one of us Christian witnesses in order to get that mission, God's mission, the great commission carried out and accomplished. It was so then. But today... What about our situation today? What is our mission field today? I mentioned last time hedonism, relativism, wokeism, narcissism. These are all rampant in our day. I failed to mention postmodernism. You say these are terms that might be sounding highfalutin for many of us. But let me explain to you postmodernism before we expound the text of Acts chapter 20. I'm convinced postmodernism is an accurate term to describe our mission field today. And for us to be able to understand it, I think we will be able to communicate the gospel clearly or even more clearer than before if we understand what postmodernism is. Postmodernism, by the very term postmodernism, there was a time when the world was, was uh, modernistic. Another term for modernism was rationalism. Modernism or rationalism are virtually synonymous. Rationalism was the idea, was the thinking that anything that was, that was not squared with human reason would not be accepted as true. In other words, they regarded human reason more authoritative than divine revelation. This, this was particularly spread from German, but this is why it's called German rationalism in the close of the 19th century. When therefore German rationalism started infiltrating biblical Bible seminaries during that time. And instead of going to the scriptures, they say, if reason, if anything that does not square with reason cannot be accepted as true, therefore they finally say, therefore, how can a virgin bring forth a son, conceive and bring forth a son? That does not square with reason. So they started denying the miracles of the Bible. And sure enough, it's not, it does not square with reason. Because the only sensible explanation to that, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, is the explanation of the angel. With God, 
nothing is impossible. It's a miracle. See, it, uh, Christianity does not go against reason. It may go beyond reason, but it will never go against it. Because Christianity is a reasonable faith. That's the reason why God says, or Jesus says, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. I hope you have your thinking caps as we hear the preaching of the word of God every time from this pulpit. Christianity is not a blind leap in the dark when you throw our mental faculties and just follow blindly. Not so. That's what cults do. They manipulate your thinking. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is a reasonable faith. And therefore there was a time modernism or rationalism dominated the world scene at the academe. But however, they found out at the beginning of the 20th century and towards the middle of it, World War I took place. What happened to all these brilliant men? Remember, 18th century, there was evolution coming into the scene. And, but what happened? If these people coming out from the dark ages are now so brilliant and so intellectual, how come we had World War I? And if it, as if man, did, it's a reason, uh, rationalism did not solve the problem, obviously, because there was World War II. So it was after World War II, then postmodernism came into the scene. So what is postmodernism? Postmodernism was the period after rationalism. Re reason was no longer regarded as the final authority. Revelation ought to be our final authority. Reason became the authority, and when they found out it's not, it, it's bankrupt. It cannot serve the problems of man. We had two world wars. So after World War II said, well, therefore reason is not going to solve man's problem. And what will be? So they enter, come enters postmodernism. Postmodernism argues for the absence of God. Have you ever heard your young people say, oh, whatever? Okay. That's a byword of this postmodern culture. That one word reflects the lack of an anchor in this drifting culture. Whatever. Where do you, what is your point of reference between right and wrong? Well, whatever. That's postmodernism. It declares man's autonomy and thus non-necessity of God. Such thinking will lead to what? Deism. Well, Christian theism. There is a God who created everything. But if God is kicked out of our thinking, therefore there may have been a God who created everything, but this God left his creation on its own course. That's deism. It will lead to deism. Therefore, we conduct our life without God. Yes, He may have created us, but God is no longer around. And we don't, you don't see purpose because God is no longer there. It could lead to nihilism. And what's nihilism? Nihilism is there is no purpose. Nihilists, you know what? Nihilists end up killing themselves. They turn out suicides. How can a theist end up a nihilist? Because it moves on to deism, existentialism, and then nihilism there is no purpose because there is no god no objective truth so resulting in change in so many things very quickly i'm still in the introduction <clears throat> because i think we need to understand our our field especially you know of course we're all aware of what's happening in this country a beautiful country with a great christian heritage and everywhere i go in the churches i visited they say 
how's the how's America say? Well, I was I've been asking, isn't how what's happening to America? The Christian heritage is fast eroding. They tell me, no, it's not fast eroding. It's gone. It grieves your heart. And what's happening if that's happening in America, the old adage is true. <clears throat> when America sneezes, the whole world catches a cold. That's just the reality of things. So when postmodernism takes over, you know what happens? There's going to be a change. Have you heard of that often platform? We need change. Okay. <clears throat> change on what? Okay. You know, postmodernism has brought change to this world. Change in, first of all, change in the power to inform. Okay. <clears throat> change the power to inform. Through image and blurring of the reality and imagination has become evident. Okay. Objective truth has been replaced by multiple truths, plural. It used to be you'd share the gospel to a person and he, are, he disagrees with you and eventually you end up into a debate. You present your argument, he presents his argument so that hopefully you can arrive at a reasonable conclusion. Nowadays you share the gospel and you say, he'll tell you, well, you know what? I'm happy where I am. If you're happy where you are, let's just live at peace. We ha I have my truth. You have your truth. Therefore, let's all be happy. See, multiple truths. That's a change in the power to inform. <clears throat> Objective truth is replaced with multiple truths. Language is viewed as creating or constructing meaning, but it does not simply reveal meaning. Nowadays, educated, cultured individuals accept the, the concept that two mutually exclusive, contradictory truths may be both equally valid nowadays. So it's a change in the power to inform. Second, it's a change on reason and logic. Reason is rejected, which destroys the possibility of objective truth. Modern technology, for instance, is predominantly image-oriented and directed to visual communication. Television and the computer have fundamentally changed the way we learn. Reading a book, which is active participation in interaction with ideas and concepts. And watching TV, which is passive participation, is definitely different. When you read a book like the Bible, so you read the, the, the details of the narrative, for instance, and your mind is engaged. And so you may read between the lines, but at least the text tells you exactly what the text simply is saying. Your mind can, get, can engage into what's happening. That's active education, reading, eventually. However, visual communication like television, more, 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 more today, modern technology has changed the way we communicate. It's passive participation. If it's if it's modern technology, image-oriented, everything is already presented to you. You don't have to actively engage into thinking. That's a big difference. See, remember those days when we would read books? Now they just turn on online education. Modern media has blurred that distinction between fiction and reality. With docudramas, reality-based programming, I don't know here if it's here, but I, I think it's here also. I think we copied in, the Philippines copied it from here, I think. This Bahe uh, Nikuya, have you heard of that? I mean, the, um, they place teenagers in a house, and it's supposed to be reality TV, so to speak. So they, they, 
come up with a situation, but it's actually a fabricated situation. See, and therefore, so these are docudramas and reality-based programming. It has trivialized all of life so that re re reality is reduced to experience rather than ethic. See, you tell my story, I'll, you, I'll tell you your, my story, you tell me your story. But where's right and wrong? Where are the ethics? It's gone. Your narrative, my narrative can be true and mine is true as well. There's no point of reference of determining what is right and wrong. Rather than life, rather than see life through the grid of our God-given conscience, modern technology has catered to the visual and has desensitized, if not eliminated, our conscience. It has shifted the power of, to influ of influence to the younger generation. Isn't that true? Dads, you don't know how to work on your gadget? Come here, Junior. Show me. Rather than let uh, influence stay with the older and more mature experienced generation, it has shifted to the younger ones. So he said, there has been a change in reason and logic. Second, postmodernism has brought change in our theology. God, for me, becomes defined by my cultural experience and my subjective interpretation of my relationship with him. In essence, I shape and form God. In Manila, there were people. There were some, there are some people who call us. They see us in our in our website. There was one guy who said, called me, Pastor. I'm I don't I, I don't know you yet, but I saw your website. Can I meet with you? Sure. We met for about an hour, and he told me, Pastor, I'm so happy and so privileged. I was able to talk to you for about an hour so that I find out what the church believes. In just an hour, I got all my questions answered. Quite frankly, Pastor, I visited this mega church and that mega church and three or four other mega churches. And Pastor, would you not believe? I called him and I asked him questions. One, two questions. And then they said, you know what? You stop asking questions. Just come to us and experience us. They cannot flesh out what they believe. It's more experience and emotional oriented rather than doctrinal oriented. That's what's happening. And therefore, sin is no longer a moral problem. It has become a social problem. That's why socialism is very much conducive in a mindset like that. It should be avoided because of its negative effects on self. Sin is to be uh, avoided, but not because it's an offense against God, but because it's of its negative effects on self and on the construction of society, rather than because it offends an authoritative and a holy God. No wonder this culture tells you, don't you ever spank your children. And you spank, call 911. What has happened to our world? We need to understand this. We are more concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, about our personality and our image rather than our substance than our character. Isn't that what Facebook does? I'm not saying it's wrong to have Facebook. Don't misread me. But let's face it. Many of us place a Facebook page and we place the best profile picture. Sometimes it's not even, sometimes it's not even our face. Piola Pascual, you know. <laughs> or somebody, you know, handsome. It's more image-oriented rather than character-oriented. And how many of you have in your Facebook a whole list of friends who are not your friends? 
See, you call them friends in Facebook, but they're not. See, because we're concerned about image rather than character. <clears throat> we have lost the concept of guilt, which has to do with moral assessment, and have replaced it with the concept of shame, which has to do with societal evaluation. See, guilt is being aware I've offended a holy God. Shame is, oh, I've been caught. You see the big difference? <clears throat> and this, of course, leads to rejection of God's solution to the problem of sin. Truth is now viewed as plural, truths. And if truth is not as the Bible presents it to be, God's, it is God's self-revelation of His character, His work, and His will for our lives, all of which is truth, then there can be no biblical Christianity. <clears throat> so there's not only change in the way you communicate, change in our theology, there's change in our expression of practical Christianity. The New Testament church's responsibility is to evangelize the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this has been replaced with social good as the primary mission of the church. Missions will be about getting communities to interact and dialogue in order to come together and around... And, come together around commonly shared experiences rather than around doctrinal agreement. Accommodation and syncretism will be increasingly greater. Syncretism is you try to get all these various views of different uh, persuasions and then synchronize or syncretize them. That's what's going to happen even more and more. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Worship will be focused on the worshiper and his needs rather than the one being worshipped. It will be evaluated more not by how it honors and exalts God, but it's by the feelings and experience produced in the heart of the worshiper. It makes me feel good. So I go out of that service, boy, am I high. It's like coming from a, a party. You forget your problems, but you go back to the world, your problems have not gone. They're still there. And of course, even as a Christian, you hear the word of God, your problems are, still are not necessarily gone. They're still there, but you know how to deal with them in a manner that's pleasing to God. Amen. You see, the main goal in preaching will be eventually to create an experience rather than to present the demands of objective truth. The goal will be experiential rather than transformational. This is the kind of culture in which we live. This is our mission field. And we need to understand that. And how do we address this mission field? With the truth of the gospel. Paul talked about the, the marks of the end times in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's why in chapter 4, what does Paul say? In the light of all of this, Timothy, we have the inspired word of God. It is enough to make you, to provide you what you need for godly life and service, verses 16 and 17. And therefore in chapter, what's the solution to a postmodern world? Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. The Bible has not changed. God's instructions for Christians have not changed. Because the word of God is rooted in the, upon the unchangeable character of our immutable God. So, let's go to our text. I'm done with my introduction. Oh my goodness, it's 11.50. Okay, my wife is now warning me, okay. All right, Acts chapter 20, verse 25. Let's go back to our text. 
But I thought that was necessary. Amen. We need to understand the mission field we are in so that we can preach the truth more accurately and, you know, and, and hit them where it hurts. So notice in verse 25, Acts chapter 20. He says, and now after giving Paul's verse, verse 24, after stating verse 24, which is personally is my life verse, none of these things move me. Remember, Paul knew that in every city, bonds and afflictions await him. Everywhere he went, there was going to be persecution. He says, not bonds and afflictions await me. None of this, but none of these things move me, neither can I my life dear unto myself, so that I finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's focus was, Paul was laser focused with his mission. I have an assignment and I have to finish it with joy. I'm not going to stay here forever because this world is not my home, Paul is saying. So I want to do the work and finish it with joy. Finish strong. And now he moves on to verse 25. Let, I have three points in my message. Hopefully you can get it in what? Ten minutes? All right. Now at this first point, the finale of Paul's ministry at Ephesus. Second point, the fulfillment of Paul's ministry at Ephesus, verse 26. And then finally, the faithfulness of Paul's ministry at Ephesus. Point number one, the finale of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And now... Behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. So the first half of this verse gives the reason of this solemn warning. He's saying, I'm about to leave. The second half contains another comprehensive and difficult description of Paul's work. He talks about uh, uh, he has gone preaching the kingdom of God. That's his work. He says, I have gone. That phrase, I have gone, is one Greek word translated in two words in the English. It's the Greek word, dielthon, which means to go through or pass through in the aorist tense. To pass through, indicating Paul was very much conscious of the fact that he had his opportunities were simply temporary. I've gone through with you. For as long as the door is open, then I will preach it. But I know that door is not going to be open every time. So I'm going to grab this opportune time to deliver the goods of the word of God to you. I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, Paul says. So you and I must realize the temporariness of our opportunities. We must realize the responsibility of feeling and acting and acting right now. There's a world out there that's hurting. And they don't even know where to turn. And who does God expect to bring them the message of hope and salvation through Jesus Christ. But the church of Jesus Christ himself. The blood-bought church. I'm not talking about the Mormons. The church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Definitely not them. They preach a false doctrine. I have gone. And I hope you and I will realize every time we have an opportunity, preach the word. Because that's there, that opportunity will not be there. Always, at least. Paul did a lot in the, in, in the church of Ephesus. In that city, God used him to work some amazing miracles. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Notice in verse 11. It says that in Ephesus, the hands of Paul did unusual miracles. See, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. 
at Ephesus. In verse 12, what do we read? So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Remember, this is a biblical narrative. Narratives tell us how things happened. But it doesn't tell us how things should always happen. See, some televangelists always copy this. But this is how things happened in Paul's ministry because he was an apostle. And the signs of an apostle followed him. There is no apostle today. Okay. <clears throat> in Acts 19 verse 15, notice it says, And the evil spirit answered, not, answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? In other words, demonic spirits, Paul had to deal with demonic spirits during his ministry in Ephesus. And with all of this, Paul did not say to the Ephesian elders, you all among whom I did some awesome miracles, that's not what he said, or you all among whom even the demons said they knew me, that's not what he said. Instead, Paul was always focusing on the life transform, transforming power of the word of God. And he said, you all among whom I have gone, what? Preaching the kingdom of God. It is as if Paul is saying, this is what I do. Preaching the kingdom of God. And sure, I do a lot of other things, but the, at the core of my, my responsibility is that I am a preacher and a preacher of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that's what we should be doing. We should be focused on declaring the truths of the word of God. Paul further says, still in that point number one, the finale, the finale of Paul's ministry, he says, I, you shall see my face no more. Paul is, not, is thinking of them. He does not say, I shall see your face no longer. So a self-centered ministry is a contradiction of terms. See, do not forget the great bond that Paul had with these Ephesian elders and Christians. He was in Ephesus for two years and the ministry was so effective so that Acts 19 verse 10 tells us, and this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. What a powerful ministry only for a period of two years. Amazing. That amount of time, that kind of effective ministry builds bonds of fellowship and friendship that last. So it was hard for them to believe it when they heard Paul saying, you're not going to see my face any longer. You're leaving us, Paul, in two years? Maybe at first they thought it was a joke, but they quickly understood that he was not joking. They understood that why he asked these elders to gather together, some of them 36 miles away just to meet him. I'm saying goodbye, brethren. And the window of opportunity given me, I've used it for the glory of God. Amazing. And you can just imagine the bonds of fellowship they had in this two years, limited time of two years. So we see the finale of Paul's ministry. Notice, let us look at the fulfillment of Paul's ministry, going back to Acts chapter 20, verse 26. Wherefore, I take you to record this day, and I am pure from the blood of all men. From the blood of all all men, meaning Jews and Greeks. Paul discharged his duty of preaching the gospel of the kingdom. His duty to all classes of men. Jews or Greeks, bond or free, male or female, rich or poor. It did not matter. Every sinner needs to hear the message of the gospel. In the Philippines, we have 110 million people. I am not entertaining the idea, neither should anyone of us entertain, that the 110 people will come to Christ. 
But it is our responsibility to bring Christ to the 110 million people in the Philippines. We don't know if they will all receive Christ. Of course, we don't, accept, we, don't, we don't entertain that delusion. But we are commanded to plant that seed one by one to all of them as God enables us. And so it is with your mission field here in New Jersey or in the United States as a whole. See, Christians are going to be guilt, guilty of the blood of certain people. Apparently, Paul was borrowing language from Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, when he said in verse 26, I am pure from the blood of all men. Ezekiel 33 verse 8 is an expression. That's where we find the expression here. A watchman who does not warn is guilty of their blood. And so what will we be if we do not plant the gospel seed and warn people? Oh, the coming certain judgment. It's going to be payday someday. But there is a way of escape that only God provided through the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. <clears throat> and I pray for myself and for all of us. I hope one of these days, while we continue our earthly sojourn, we can say that though in my sphere of influence, I'm pure from the blood of all men. How far have we gone preaching the gospel? Have you started sharing the gospel to your roommate? To your parents, children? To your loved ones and friends? We are under mandate. It's not an option, as Pastor mentioned earlier. It's a command to teach or preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, Listen, brethren, I've done my part. From now on, the responsibility is yours. There's more work to do elsewhere. And where I'm going, I'm not going to America to enjoy. Where I'm going, I'm going to Jerusalem and bonds and afflictions is still awaiting me. Can you imagine this man? What a great man of God. This is one of the men I'm excited to see, a second to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul. Amazing man. A man of God. In the Old Testament, I like to see Nehemiah as well. I know you've gone through the book of Nehemiah. Amazing man of God. He just stuck into staying on course and finishing his God-given task until the wall was finished. Paul said the same thing with the church of Ephesus. In this particular mission field, I'm done. I'm clean from the blood of all men. I'm ready to go to the next assignment even though opposition is waiting for me. In his last inspired epistle, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have finished my course. What, amazing, what an amazing achievement, isn't it? All because of the grace of God. He said in the church of Ephesus, or to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he also was able to say it in his last inspired epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. This is my ultimate graduation. My course is finished. Amazing. I wish you and I can say the same thing. So how far are we going as far as our mission since we got saved is concerned? Or have some of us hardly started? Why? Because I am nahihiya. I'm ashamed. My neighbor is seven foot tall with a beard. Boy, am I scared to share him the gospel. Look at his car. It's a BMW or whatever it is. It's a Lamborghini. Will he listen to me? 
I have done my part. From now on, the responsibility is yours. As if he was, uh, he were giving these witnesses in a court of law. He was giving a witness in a court of law. Paul declared that his heart was clear. He could leave these Christians to God's care with a good and clear conscience. Boy, am I praying I could say the same thing. When I, and I really would like to take the opportunity to thank those of you who have been praying for us, especially during our surgery two years ago. But when that happened, I was saying, the Lord, Lord, I'm eager and excited to see you, no longer by faith, but this time by sight. I'm concerned about my wife and my family, but Lord, if this is my time, it's my time. I'm excited to see you. Apparently, he made me through. And what does that mean? It's very clear. I'm not done with you yet. You've got work to be done. Amen. <clears throat> and therefore, it became clearer. There's work to be done, and there's work to be finished. And I'd like to finish my course, by God's grace, with joy. Those two words are important. Some of us are working and finishing our joy. Oh, the Christian life is so difficult. You need to get saved. But it's really difficult. Who will want to be saved? <laughs> Let me go to my last point. The faithfulness of Paul, of Paul's ministry. Verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. This is the reason why Paul can say verse, the previous verse. And he also said in verse 20, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. He discharged his God-given responsibility. Remember his philosophy of ministry? It was a stewardship. See, this book is not mine. The gospel is, yes, you've received Christ as Savior. In a sense, in what, there is a sense in which it's already yours. But there is another sense that it has been given to us because we are called to be stewards of that gospel. So that we can pass it on to the next generation, to people around us. And Paul, having said, I have, not, I have declared to you that which is profitable unto you. No wonder he could say, I am clean from the blood of all men. Mission accomplished. See, no back job. I've done what God's called me to do. No part of the divine counsel was omitted, suppressed, or explained away. This underscores the importance, therefore, for all of us. If Paul was able to say that, hopefully we can all do that. But we can only do that, first of all, it's, this will underscore the importance of studying the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God. Because you cannot share what you do not know. So we need to be grounded in the word. We need to know this book. The devil knows this book, do you know? He's a summa cum laude. He has a doctorate in theology. Boy, was he, is he a master in quoting the scripture, but he's quoting it out of context. This very Sunday morning, there are people in pulpits this morning. In a sutana or in a kotentai, maybe in a barong. And they will say, you know, brethren, God helps those who help themselves. I need to earn your way to salvation. False teachers. The devil. And he will quote passages like, you know, money is the root of all evil. It's one of the most misquoted passages in scripture. Because money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Okay. So if you think the money is the root of all evil, I have my pocket here that needs to be filled. 
It's the love of money. Jesus said, Luke 12, 15, Beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. That's how the world thinks. I am who I am because of my riches. Look at my car. Look at my house. Look at all the gadgets that I have. That's this world. And most people sadly call the American dream is another term for materialism. But that's not what makes character. A man's life does not, Jesus says, consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Very clear statement, Luke 12, 15. In fact, he opens that verse with, Take heed, watch out, Christian, be careful, because like what most people think, no, that's not what makes character your money. Many of us Christians are guilty with identity replacement. You know what identity replacement is? We had to replace our identity in Christ with something else. Something in God's created order. Sometimes it's money. If I don't have that car, boy, am I going to be heartbroken. If I don't get my cell phone or my gadgets, if we don't have Wi-Fi, what's life going to be like? Some people think our identity is in our achievements. All your accolades, your educational achievements and all that. Oh, because I am a doctor. You see, listen, that's not what we get our, where we get our identity. And of course, I don't belittle the importance of studying the Word of God. I just said it. <clears throat> but we study the Word of God not in order to get credit letters at the end of our name. We study the Word of God in order to grow in the faith. Some Christians are not growing in the faith. They're swelling. Hindi sila lumalago, namamaga, as we say it in Tagalog. They're swelling their head in knowledge. And the Bible says, knowledge puffs up. Boy, basic truth, isn't it? Yet we stumble over its simplicity. We cannot overemphasize the importance of studying the Bible, teaching and preaching the Bible as well, uh, teaching and preaching it as well. For God's word has to be learned in order to be taught and expressed. And Paul was able to say, I am clean from the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you all the counsel of God. That presumes he knew the word of God and therefore was able to communicate it accurately. Not any part of the divine counsel was suppressed or omitted or explained away. See, declaring faithfully God's counsel, whole counsel will help us to avoid two strong temptations. Number one, if you don't study the Bible and don't declare the whole counsel, we cease to learn. If we don't study, of course, we cease to learn. And when we cease to learn, we cease to be able to teach. See, the only reason, we, the, only, the, the best way to be able to effectively teach the, word, the Bible is to keep on learning. Second uh, is that the second temptation is to lay special stress on our pet doctrines. If we don't keep on studying the Bible, then what we've learned earlier in the Christian life, all we know is about giving. Giving. Next Sunday, giving. Now, why do you keep preaching giving? Because the people have not given yet. So you keep giving. It's all that message. It's a pet doctrine for some preachers. They even have giving conferences, you know. Rather than prophecy conferences or Bible conferences and the like. And I'm not minimizing the importance of giving. But sometimes we have our pet doctrines. Maybe it's maybe second coming. It's a valuable cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. But if that's all you talk about, 
That's only a portion of the whole counsel of God. Paul declared the whole counsel of God. That's why he was able to say, I am clean from the blood of all men. See, it involves preaching God's judgment upon disobedience. But it also involves preaching God's grace and blessing to those who obey. God is a holy God and therefore he hates all forms of sin. Thus, doctrines such as hell, sin, God's wrath, holiness, or separation are all part of the counsel of God. I was being asked yesterday by a brother, Pastor, how do you share the gospel? When I was sharing the gospel, I was talking about those wages of sin is death, and therefore because of that, he got offended. So how, how do I explain the message of the gospel without him being offended? Well, you certainly cannot remove the aspect of death. That's part of the gospel. Maybe you can do it this way. Wait, well, let, let me finish the bad news before I go to the good news. Hang on there. Because the good news becomes better even and best if you understand the bad news. You cannot say you are a sinner deserving condemnation. The, the man will not say, I'm blessed. You're a sinner deserving condemnation. And to make matters worse, you cannot even save yourself. The best of your good works and religion cannot save you. Really? How offensive is that? But here's the good news. I'm glad you hold on, held on for a while. There is salvation to those who will come to Jesus Christ. This is the finale of Paul's message, of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. I could see the time. I wish we could stay longer here, but we're still not living in eternity. We're still living in time-space existence. But let me leave this challenge to you. I'm preaching to you as I'm preaching to myself. How far have we gone in God's mission for our lives? I'm going to challenge you to pray. <clears throat> Say, Lord... Your will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Would you ask God for that? Even if it means dying to self. It's just your will, Lord, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. I hope that's your prayer. It's mine too, for myself and my family. Yes, there will be opposition from the unsaved. There'll be opposition from even professing Christians. And no much as, how much as we love our family, sometimes the opposition will come from our own household sometimes. Whatever the case might be, you say, Lord, nothing, your will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. I'm going to leave this platform to pastor. We'll go to our invitation right now. Let's every bow, uh, head bow and eye close. Uh, let's talk to the Lord uh, from the altars of our heart and to Him. And I know the Lord has spoken to us in a special and a mighty way this afternoon. Maybe uh, something on the message and uh, touch our heart convey uh, a burden and a passion reignited that passion so let's bring it to the Lord once again uh, I'd like to reiterate what Pastor Albioka said how far have we gone to our mission if it is the Lord's will we know it's nothing more 
nothing less by His grace. Let's do it. Let's ask Him for His strength, for His wisdom. If you're here uh, this afternoon, if you can hear the sound of my voice or the preaching that you just heard today, the gospel is something that any individual person should take heed to. You're here today, you can either receive it or reject it. The gospel, the good news that Christ died for your sins, he was buried and he rose again. And that's the only way for a person to be saved. So if you're here today, you're trusting into something else rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you by the light of God's word that you already condemned because of our sin that was inherited, imputed to us, and also our involvement in sin. But there's a God in heaven who loves you. He made a way for you to escape that judgment, that condemnation. And His name is Jesus. He gave His life's blood on the cross because He knew that no man can ever save himself. He will always fall short of the glory of God. But He is the perfect man Sinless, He bore our sins on Calvary's cross. He paid it with His own life's blood because He knew that there is no other way. And we're thankful that He did that for us. So today, if you'll just call upon His name, trust Him to be your Lord and Savior. He'll save you today. Is there anybody in this room today you've never trusted Christ as your Savior or who can hear this broadcast? I encourage you. Why not? call upon His name today and save you. Make it your own prayer. I can guide you to a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that I am a sinner. I could never save myself. But I thank you that you love me, that you died on the cross for my sin, you shed your blood, and you rose again for my salvation. I now repent of all my sins. Forgive me. And by faith, I receive you in my heart and life to be my Lord and personal Savior. I trust you alone to save me. And from this day forth, help me to know you and live for you and serve you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I hope you had called upon the name of Christ for salvation. If you've done that, let us know. For Christians, for believers here, I really love what our speaker had said. There is that temporary opportunities that we will have in this life to share the gospel. There will come a time that that door will close. So why not take the opportunity and ask God for help, for strength, to have that holy boldness and courage and wisdom to tell somebody about the gospel. It might be offensive, but I pray that their blood will not be required in our hands. What a surreal thought that is, isn't it? You've known your best friend for many years, but they've never even once shared the gospel, never once prayed for their salvation of their soul. And a pastor, if Yoko is right, it doesn't matter what they accomplish in this life, but if they are without Christ, it's nothing. It's all empty. It's vain. Because they have an eternal soul. 
that needs to be rescued. And we have the message. We have that hope. May we, by God's grace, we know it is God's will, be able to do that while the door of opportunity is still open. Father God in heaven, as your people pray, I know, Lord, all of our hearts have been blessed. We've been taught, we've been admonished, we've been encouraged and edified by your word today. And now we are given that uh, responsibility, Lord, to tell others about thee. May we do it with joy, O Lord. May we truly finish our course with joy, knowing, Lord, that we did our best because you already done your part. And may we be encouraged, Lord, as the days go by, Lord, to live truly by faith and not by sight. And, Lord, depend upon your grace, depend upon your wisdom to be that channel, Lord, of blessing to others. And help us, Lord, to keep that burden, that vision in our hearts and never quit on praying and reaching out to our uh, unsaved loved ones and friends and co-workers because we know, Lord, this is their only hope in this life, Lord. And we just pray for your continual blessings upon us. Continue to bless the, the life of Pastor Livioca and his family and his ministry in the Philippines. Continue to bless their travels here. Give them uh, uh, protection and good health. And uh, bless our missionaries who are preaching uh, the gospel of Christ all over the world. And even the, the preachers and Christians and evangelists and pastors who are now preaching here in America in pulpit. May they be a har harvest of soul and revival in the hearts of the believers, Lord, in, in different churches. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.